So I, I grew up uh, playing a lot of sports, loved playing sports, was playing basketball, golf, uh, soccer, you name it, anything with a ball, I was wanting to play it. And so uh, I love playing sports. Many of you, I would say the large majority of people in this room, you maybe played a sport, and if you didn't play a sport, you played something, right, an instrument or voices or something. And my, my point is, it's like if you grew up doing anything like in that realm, like you've heard this phrase, right? Practice makes perfect, right? It's a, it's a well-known phrase. It means well, but the reality is it's just not true, right? Practice doesn't make perfect. And now I'm not trying to poo-poo practice, like practice is important, but it doesn't make perfect, Right? And so we need wiser people. And like Vince Lombardi, he was no theologian, but he did say this about practice. He says, practice, practice does not make purpose. Per, per, practice does not make perfect, perfect. It makes reasonable progress. That's a lot of P's, okay? It's a lot of P's. And so, um, and what I love about scripture is that what the Bible's teaching us is that really, I mean, we are called to grow spiritually. And that spiritual development, that spiritual formation, that spiritual transformation that we are kind of longing for, I mean, that does take practice. That we are called to do some things and then in that, like, change is going to happen. But the reality is, is that you and I are not gonna achieve perfection on this side of heaven. But God does give us like certain practices to do so that we can grow. And so we have been in a series that's uh, called Connected, looking at what are some of the practices or rhythms or disciplines that we can do to actually make us look more like our God, to make us look more like Jesus. And so for the last three weeks, we've been looking at the practice of Sabbath, right? The practice of like resting delighting in worshiping God can help us actually grow spiritually. And so we're not going to look at practice of Sabbath any longer. We're going to look at another practice for three weeks. It's the practice of worship, the practice of worship. And so when we say worship, we, we mean not just singing with our mouth, but we I mean individual worship as well as, as corporate worship. We want to come together, and we think that when we come together for worship, something powerful can happen. Um, we think spiritual development happens. And so if we haven't used the definition. It's on the screen um, for the last few weeks. But when we say spiritual development, spiritual formation, the idea is that we are in all are in process, right? It's a process of being formed into the image of Jesus, we want to look like Jesus. And when he does something, it's not just for our benefit. It's actually for the benefit and the blessings of others as well. So grab your Bibles, and we are going to look at the practice of worship in Psalm 95. Psalm 95. So if you didn't, uh, yeah, if you're newer to Christianity, Bible, like where the Psalms at, you can just take your Bible if you have a physical one and just kind of break it right down the middle, and you'll see Psalms is right there. Um, if you have your phone, snag it. If you didn't bring it, that's fine. Those verses are on the screen. And so Psalm 95, now as you're making your way over to Psalm 95, Psalm 95 is really just a psalm encouraging us. It's like an exhortation on worship. But before we get there, Psalm 95 actually shows us actually the why. We're all about why. Why are we called to do this? Psalm 95 will give us at least four reasons for why we worship. 
But before we look at God's word, I think it is helpful to say, okay, what do you mean by worship? Because we wanna be clear as like what, what worship is and kind of is not. Worship is just not solely singing. It entails singing, but it's more than singing. So what, what is worship? A, a very general or generic def- definition would be it's ascribing value and worth to an object. It's, it's pausing and saying that object, there's something about that object that is valuable, right? It has worth, worship. And so we are, by nature, do you realize we are actually hardwired for worship? We will, whether we want to or not. We are going to worship, worship something. And so worship is looking to something or someone for worth, for hope, for security, for life, for satisfaction. And so we will not remain neutral when it comes to worship. We will worship something, right? And so whatever that said object is, whatever that you're thinking, man, that's what gives me, that's what's valuable to me. That's what find, that is where I find my, my ultimate hope or satisfaction. That's where I find my security, right? Whatever that said object is, really that is your functional God. And so we all have this like, proclivity in us to actually go after all these like counterfeit gods out there because we think that's going to give us hope and security and life. And so um, I don't know how many of you, if you're a parent in the room, I, I know you've heard this from your kids and I almost guarantee you, you've said it at one time. How, do you remember like when your kid, like it could be just even a few months ago at Christmas, like, oh, if you, if you just give me, get me X, then I'll never ask for anything else ever again. Like, if you just give me this new, the new iPhone, I promise, I promise, I'll never ask for another phone ever. If you give me this new gaming system, I, I, I will be completely satisfied. I've said it. You've likely said it. And even though we can kind of poke fun and like kids, little kids are notorious for saying things like that, we actually still actually, if we don't say it outwardly, we still think it inwardly. Because we think, oh, if, if I just had that relationship, then things would be different. Then I'd be happy. If, if I just had that job, that job would change everything in my world. If I just had that salary, if I could just make this amount of money, then I, I would never, ever complain ever again. And the reality is, is that they don't satisfy. That job that you have always hoped for actually isn't what you thought it was. And that person isn't who they thought they, they were either. And so we have this like unswervingly nature, like we have this like hardwired into us. We will worship something. We'll go after something. And so we naturally look, look to worship, but we then have, we have a massive problem in that area. A huge problem. And the problem is, is that we worship all the wrong things. Like we want, we are wired in such a way, our natures are so actually so marred and so scarred and so broken is that we think everything but God is actually what's going to satisfy me. We wanna worship everything but the one who is actually worthy of worship. There's an author 
that many of you have heard. His name is C.S. Lewis, and I don't remember what book it's in. It might be The Weight of Glory. But he, he kind of phrased it in such a way where he says, it's not that we don't worship, it's that we worship too easily. It's not that we aren't satisfied, we are satisfied too easily. He's like, we will settle for mud pies when there's an infinite buffet before us. That, that's our biggest problem. It's like, not to be crude, but it's like, it's like settling for the flying weenie when you have like an all-inclusive package resort at the sea being offered for you, right? I like a good hot dog, I do. But if there's an all-inclusive resort, why would we settle for less? And so I say that and I pause that because that's exactly what actually God's word tells us. Before we get to our text, you realize there's a, there's a prophet in the Old Testament. His name, his name is Jeremiah. And he said it this way. He, actually, it's, he said it, but it's actually God said it. And I'm going to kind of quote you a verse that's on, on the screen as well. It's like when you see these verses, it can almost sound harsh, but you almost have to, like sometimes you just got to read God's word and say, what, what's the, what do you think the heart of God sounded like? And when God said these words about his people, you have to, it's almost like he's broke his heart. He says, my people have committed two evils. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's like, they've forsaken me and they dug wells. And the wells that they dug, they're broken. They don't hold the water that they think they're going to hold. And so God is like, it's not that he's just upset. He's like, he's brokenhearted. He's broken and he's sad because like his people have turned from him. And it's not because it's like his ego was bruised. It's like his heart is broken because in his infinite knowledge, he just knows they have settled for the lesser and not the better. He's like, they think that they're gonna have satisfaction and life and hope and security and it's a broken well. It doesn't work. It does not work. And so he lets us know. He says, you have to realize the problem that they're in, the problem that we're in. It's the same problem. So the question is really, like, what do you worship? What's your functional God? What's the counterfeit gods that you go after? Because you think that in them, they provide hope and security and life. And so God's saying, be careful, be careful. They've rejected me. They've forsaken me. So in Jeremiah's day, they've misplaced, misplaced worship. They forsook God. They turned from the one who is worthy of worship. They've turned from the one who, was, who is worth, who has hope and gives life and satisfaction. And he says, that's just the first problem. The first problem is they forsook me. The second problem is just as egregious. It's not just that they forsook him, they've replaced him. They've rejected him and then replaced him. That's why I love, they exchanged their worship for worship and something that's infinitely inferior. We've all exchanged things, right? When Christmas time came and you got the gift that you're like, yep, that's not for me. We have no problem taking something in like it didn't fit or it's just not worthy to us. I guess this has no worth. And so we exchange it. Why? Because we always want something better. And he says, there's a fear here. There's a problem. You are exchanging things and it's never for the better. It's infinitely inferior. 
So the imagery is so helpful. God says that you, you think that when you dig wells, that when you dug the well, that you're all of a sudden now gonna have this reservoir where this reservoir is now gonna quench your thirst. And he says, it's broken. It's broken. It's like he's pleading with his people, don't fall into that trap. It won't satisfy. It will not satisfy. And so I spend a number of minutes just talking about this before we jump into Psalm 95, because this is not a small issue when it comes to Scripture. You see it in Jeremiah. In fact, you actually even see it even in the Ten Commandments. If you've been around church at all, some of you are like, okay, you might be familiar with the Ten Commandments. You might not be able to list all of them. You can list like, oh, okay, I know that I'm not supposed to murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, right? Don't lie. Do you remember the first commandment that God gave? The very first. The very first commandment, God says, hey, just so you know, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make for yourselves idols, right? Don't craft these like images of other gods and go after them, right? In fact, in just this last hour, we have a number of children that go down. And when you take your kids down to, to the children's area, it's not childcare, right? It's discipleship. It's spiritual development for them. And actually, a few months ago, we spent a number of weeks as a church saying, we want to teach these kids even about idolatry, that that might feel like, a, like that doesn't, isn't relevant today. Oh, it is. Idolatry is relevant. And so what did we teach them? We taught them exactly what idolatry is. This is what we taught them. Idolatry is the sin of the heart in which we love and value something else above God. Is that not still true today? We might not craft images and worship images, but we definitely do this because our heart is always prone to go after other things and value other things or other people above who he is. And so idolatry is alive and well. And so we're teaching even our little ones, be careful, all of us have this proclivity to actually go, go after that. So that's why we spend a little bit of time here. Let's look at Psalm 95, though. Psalm, Psalm 95. If you're wondering, what remedies, how can we remedy this problem of actually, like, going after broken wells? How can we ensure us that we don't actually fall into idolatry? The practice of worship. The practice of worship helps us. So, Psalm 95, Psalm 95. Let's see what God has to say. It is an exhortation, encouraging us to worship, not just individually, you'll notice all the us's. This is corporate, corporate worship. And we're gonna look at four reasons, real simply, four reasons for why the psalmist says, this is why we worship. There could be more, but I found four, right? The first one is this, right? We worship God because he is our creator, right? And you see that in verse six. Now, you might be saying, well, why, what about verse 1? Well, I'm just, this is more chronologically in order. We'll go back to verse 1. But we worship, he says, by 6, because he's our creator. Oh, come. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our God, our maker. Right? So the psalmist right here is saying, we are called to worship. We are exhorted to worship. Why? Because he is the one who authors life. Existence comes from him. Life comes from him that you and I have been formed and fashioned by God. 
You, some, somebody needs to hear this today. You are not an accident. You're not. And so many people will come into church or they'll go about their lives and they feel so much shame as if they are not valuable at all. And here God lets you know, he is your creator. He made you. He formed you. He might not have directly made you like he directly made Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, but he instrumentally made you through your parents. In fact, even the psalmist, Psalm 95, you can almost lay it next to Psalm 139. There's a lot of like kind of parallels there. And in Psalm 139, you actually see like, you remember what David says? He says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, meaning I worship you because I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. He's our creator. He fashioned us. But he's more than that. It gets even better. We worship not just because he made us. We worship him because he's our savior. That's where you see it in verses one and two. You see that? He says, oh, come, let us sing. Let us worship to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And so he just moves really kind of from a more general to a very specific. He says, yes, we worship him because he's the author of life. We worship him because he formed us, but we worship him because he saves. He is a God who delivers He is the rock of our salvation. We make joyful noises because we have a God who says, I see you in your helpless state and I will deliver you. I'll rescue you. I'll save you. He says, he's the rock. He's the rock of our salvation. What what does that mean? As I was reflecting on like, okay, rock of salvation, rock of salvation. I I see one of two meetings that could happen here. One, like the rock of salvation. He could use that rock in a very, really a very general or generic sense. Like oftentimes when you read throughout the Old Testament, God is likened to very kind of like concrete images. We don't use more, when we talk about God, we just kind of use more abstract images. Like when you describe God, how do you describe him? Oh, he's powerful. He's love. He's like, you know, he's eternal, right? Those are abstract. The the author here is not using abstract. He's, he's saying he, he, he's a rock. He's a sun. He's a shield. He's our refuge. He's a strong tower. He's a shepherd. And so he can be used kind of in a, in a generic sense that he's a firm foundation. How often you will see like he's the rock of ages. He is a cornerstone. Psalm 19, 14 May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, what? My rock and my redeemer. So it could be used in kind of that sense, but I I don't think that's what the psalmist is thinking. I think he's thinking of a very more, an event where, where this is actually even highlighted even more. Rock of salvation. Can you think of a rock that brings salvation? Right? In the Old Testament, you see it actually in the Exodus and in Numbers. Remember, God delivered his people. They were in bondage under Egypt, and God saved them. He redeemed them. 
And then he directs them into the wilderness. And he's like, I'm going to lead you to a land that's going to give you ultimate rest. I'm going to take you where you're going to have rest and blessing. And along the way, he's like, I'm going to put you through some difficult challenges because I want you to trust me. I want you to see how good I am. But do you remember what happened in the wilderness? They grumbled and they complained. They grumbled and complained against Moses and God. Why? Because he didn't provide them food. And one time, they were thirsty. And God says, I'll supply your thirst. I'll supply your thirst. Remember, Moses struck the rock. Albeit twice, but he struck the rock. And that rock produced water. Satisfied them. It saved them. It saved them. And so I say that because, man, some of you, we hear like your heart actually just bubbles up because when you say, okay, our God, I worship because he saved, you've experienced that. Some of your hearts, you're just like, yes, because you remember where you were and what God has done. And you can share stories about how God has intervened, not maybe just in your life, but in the lives of others and loved ones. And you're like, man, he is worthy of praise because he saves, he saves. But there are some, like some of us, that don't actually feel that. We don't feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, he's a savior, he's a savior. And I think when we feel that way, it's because we actually, at times, if we're honest, we just overestimate our abilities. We are really prone to overestimate our skills and our abilities. Like, we don't need that much help. We're, we're fine kind of where we're at. I, I remember uh, when, I, when we first moved here, I, I gave a message. I don't remember what the message was about, but I remember mentioning how I played pickleball in the message. And then afterwards, a lady came up to me after the service, and she was like, oh, you play pickleball? I play pickleball. We should play pickleball. And so I, I, and I remember thinking, oh, she's awful passionate about pickleball. Um, and, 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 and truth be told, she's like, I, pl- I play pickleball. You should, you should just play with me. I play with some friends. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And in my head, I was like, that's not great. I, I really, I, it wasn't true. I really didn't want to play pickleball with her. And, and it, truth, truth be told, I was like, you know what? I'm still kind of fit. I feel like I'm still kind of spry. I might not be as quick as I was in high school and college, but I still got some speed. And she's like my mom's age. And I was like, uh, thanks, but mm, no thanks. Now, unless you think I'm a complete jerk, I was like, I'll go and I'll just like, I'll just play with her a little bit and then I'll, I'll go home. So I show up and I, I start playing. She throttled me. <laughs> I mean, she is awesome. Last service, she just happened to be in row M over there. And I was like, Dawn, you, she's an incredible pickleball player. I thought I was good. She made me look small. I did not have her pickleball skills. Now, what's my point? I grossly overestimated my pickleball skills. I thought more highly of myself than I ought to think, and that's us. The reality is, is that we overestimate our ability, and we don't oftentimes think we need saving. And yet God says, oh, yeah, You are thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. 
you need to be rescued. And we just so happened to have a God who loves to do just that. He loves to rescue. He takes great delight in delivering us. He longs to be our Savior. And he has, and he does. And so he's, that's why the psalmist is just saying, would you reflect? No, we worship. He created you. He made you. He formed you. You are fearfully, you are wonderfully made. And not just that, you, you have been delivered by him. And he goes on. We worship for something else. Reason number three, we worship because he's our king. Right? The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of all gods. He is the ultimate ruler. He's the ultimate king. You see that in verse three? For the Lord is great. He is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry ground. And so here the psalmist is just saying he's worthy of worship because he, he is king. He is the so, he's in sovereign control. And so he's likely reflecting on like all the other nations that they're around. And what did the other nations, how did, what were their gods? What did they worship? You just look at the other nations. Like they, they would worship the sun, the moon. They would worship the stars. They'd worship animals. They'd worship the river and other, other forces of nature. Like they would worship aspects of creation, but they weren't actually worshiping the creator. What did they do? They do what we still do. They exchanged the glory of God for something infinitely inferior. And so here, here the psalmist is reminding us, we have the ultimate ruler, the ultimate king. He's sovereign over all things, depths of the earth, heights of the heavens, sea, right? Again, what do I, I just, when I, when I saw those words, like Psalm 139, yet again, Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? Where should I go from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the depths of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the night about me be as, the, the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. For light is as bright as the day. I mean, we have a God who is sovereign over all creation. He's king. He has might, he has magnitude. But it's even better than that. It's almost like he just goes general, specific, general, specific. He's creator, kind of general, but he's a creator that saves. He's king, he's ruler, right? But he is a king that's good. You see that? He's not a tyrant. He's not a dictator. How, how is he described as a king? He's also a shepherd. We worship because he's a shepherd. Verse seven, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Right, we're meant to see now the personal, like he's personal and he brings provision. He loves to supply. He loves to step in and meet needs. And so 
I mean, are you seeing like the reasons? This is why we worship, why, right? He's a creator. He's a creator that cares for you. He sees you. He's a savior that has rescued you. He hasn't left you to perish. He's a king that will defend you. And he's a shepherd that will always provide, right? Remember, like even, even in the other Psalm, Psalm 23, a very familiar Psalm. God is likened to a shepherd, and what does he do? He leads you beside still waters. He brings you close to green pastures where provision can be found. He, he restores your soul. He will lead you in paths of righteousness. And even when things are great, he says, even when things are hard and dark, don't think I've neglected you. I'll, I'll walk with you. My rod, my staff, they'll comfort you. So these are why, why we worship, because he sees you. He loves you. And so we worship God. We worship because he's a creator, he's a savior, he's a king, and he's a loving shepherd. So I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're gonna sing a few more songs. Usually we'll sing like one song. We're not gonna sing one song. We're gonna sing a couple songs. And we're just gonna reflect and say, you know what? You, you are worthy of worship with our voices but don't just sing with your voice, like reflect on the words and say, let that go from their head to your heart. Where, where is God kind of speaking to you? So he's worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you've demonstrated your love towards us that even while we are still sinners and rebels and wanderers, right, you sent your son to die for us. That you so love the world that you gave you gave your one and only son that whoever believes, not strives, not tries to earn, but whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so, God, there are people here, whether listening online or in person, God, that have not trusted, would you direct their heart to Jesus? That they would lay down this idea that they can have life by their own ability. Direct them to Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen.